Did Money Not Morality End British Enslavement? Episode 5. We've seen so far in this series that in 1807, the practice of enslaving people in Africa and transporting them to the British Caribbean was banned by the British Parliament. It had very little to do with the campaign mounted by abolitionists, which had long since run out of steam. The trade was banned because plummeting sugar prices and rocketing costs of shipping and credit were forcing the sugar planters into unpayable debt. Something had to be done before there was a credit crisis and they took the merchants and bankers of London down with them. Once the trade in newly enslaved people was banned in 1807, most abolitionists gave up the campaign. William Wilberforce himself doesn't even mention it in his journals for 10 years. Uh, many seem to have hoped that without the supply of newly enslaved people, slavery itself in the West Indies would wither away. But it didn't. Hello. Good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Having lost their access to newly enslaved people, the British planters could have transitioned to a sustainable mixed economy with hired labour that grew much of its own food, or to what they called an ameliorated slave economy, working with the churches, as planters did in Dutch and Spanish colonies and in the southern states of North America, to produce enough semblance of normal life for enslaved communities to be self-sustaining in the long run. Perhaps even, as the abolitionists had hoped and some planters claimed to believe, as we shall see, they could have moved towards a situation in which the enslaved could eventually become free men and women. Uh, the evidence of the southern states of North America suggests that that would never in fact have occurred, but anything would have been better than the unsustainable brutality that continued on most British plantations. Some, of course, tried to smuggle newly enslaved people from Africa. From 1813, the British government had to begin taking censuses of the enslaved as a way to check on people smuggling. It showed, in fact, that it was not a large-scale problem. What the censuses revealed, however, was that, except in Barbados, numbers of the enslaved were declining. It confirmed that the planters were still treating their enslaved workforces so badly that the death rate was still higher than the birth rate. Without any new arrivals, the numbers would inevitably drop. Nothing had changed. There were some reforming voices among the planters. One of them was John Gladstone, father of the later Prime Minister. Now, John Gladstone was an evangelical Liverpool merchant who'd cashed in on the credit crisis to pick up a series of estates cheaply in newly captured Guyana on the South American coast. Gladstone loudly proclaimed a new humanitarian approach to his enslaved workers. He ordered no more whipping. Slave drivers were to be renamed superintendents. New churches would be built. Women would be encouraged to marry and be given less work while they were pregnant and while they were caring for their children. The children themselves would be baptised and sent to Sunday school. Food would be better and there wouldn't be too much rum. 
Gladstone reassured his estates manager that this would all increase productivity. And more importantly, it would also head off any more of those calls to abolish enslavement itself. Now, this is important because from the mid-1820s, John Gladstone was perhaps the most influential voice on the enslavement issue with the Tory government. He persuaded them that this gradual amelioration of the enslaved people's condition was the way to progress. In the far distant future, enslavement would gradually vanish away. In the meantime, of course, the planters' profits had to be protected. Don't rock the boat. Well, Gladstone was articulate and his business was apparently successful and he was saying what the Tory government wanted to hear. The Tory government under Liverpool and Gladstone's evangelical friend George Canning lapped it all up. Sounds all too wearingly familiar. The truth of the matter was that John Gladstone was a fraud. He'd never been to his estates in Guyana. The local planters there regarded him as dangerous and ignorant, a slick businessman who'd profited from the bankruptcy of their friends, buying their estates up at rock-bottom prices. He'd quickly been able to build up a massive business that could undercut them, not by treating the workforce any better, but by sheer economy of scale. The man owned all his own ships and was building his own canals, for goodness sake. The reality was that the death rate among the enslaved was worse in Guyana, where Gladstone's estates were, than anywhere else. In fact, the numbers of enslaved there dropped by 21% in 10 years after 1819. And that was despite many enslaved people being shipped in from other British colonies, which was still allowed. One missionary reported that the enslaved in Guyana were being forced out to work from 6.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night. Well, you might say maybe Gladstone's estates were different from the rest. Hmm. Well, we now know that Gladstone's local manager, Frederick Court, mostly ignored all of his boss's stream of improving or amelioration orders. We know that Gladstone himself insisted that his workforce, in fact, worked even longer hours than others and was more tightly controlled. They were also being continually shunted from one end of Gladstone's enormous business empire to the other. And he believed in stamping out the Africans' own religious beliefs. In fact, whatever he told the gullible Tory politicians, John Gladstone privately believed, as he confessed to a fellow merchant, that without enslavement, the Africans would be, quote, idle, insolent, slothful and averse to outdoor work. Enslavement on John Gladstone's estates was, in effect, no better, sounds worse actually, than anywhere else. Shortly after dawn on Monday the 18th of August 1823, a serious rebellion broke out among the enslaved in Guyana. It's a story you can find in Michael Taylor's book on abolition, The Interest. And where did the revolt begin? Well, you guessed, it began on John Gladstone's own estates. Despite banning the trade in newly enslaved peoples in 1807, the British government allowed enslavement itself to continue. One reason was the influence of a Liverpool merchant and planter, John Gladstone. He claimed that improving conditions for the enslaved on his estates in Guyana 
had not only made the enslaved more productive, but more content. There was, said Gladstone, no need to end enslavement. It's what the Tory governments wanted to hear, and they believed him. But Gladstone had never actually been to his estates in Guyana on the South American coast. In reality, they were no better than anyone else's. In some ways, they were worse. On Monday, the 18th of August, 1823, a major rebellion broke out in Guyana, and it was centred on Gladstone's own estates. It was later said to have been plotted by a black deacon at a local Methodist chapel, one Carmina Gladstone, along with his son Jack Gladstone, a skilled carpenter on the Gladstone estates. Like many enslaved, they'd been given the surname of their owner. The previous October, Carmina and Jack Gladstone had been forced out to work 13-hour days while Carmina's wife Peggy lay ill. She died alone. No wonder they'd had enough. That Monday, in August 1823, the air filled with the sound of conch shells. They were usually used to summon the workforce to the fields, but now the conch shells were calling them to rebel. The revolt quickly spread along the coast, taking 40 plantations, one after another, seizing guns, but almost everywhere sparing planters and their managers any harm. On the Wednesday, the local British commander, one Colonel John Leahy, met the rebels at Bachelor's Adventure Plantation, which the rebels had made their headquarters. Leahy said he was there to parley. The rebels demanded not their freedom, nor the handing over of the plantations, nor the ending of growing sugar, nor in fact shorter working days, nor even an end to physical punishment. They said nothing about the appalling death rate. All the rebels asked for was three days off a week to work on their own plots and the right to attend church on Sunday. While they were talking, Leahy's men quietly surrounded the building. At his signal, they opened fire. Between 100 and 150 of the rebels were killed. Now the soldiers visited systematic retribution, taking one plantation after another and summarily executing any rebels. At Rossouvenir, the rebels raised a white flag but was shot dead anyway. Once all the plantations were back in planters' hands, there was a series of courts martial. 70 were tried and 69 found guilty. Most were executed, many of their heads displayed on spikes as if this was still the 17th century. A few others got away with some months of solitary confinement or a flogging. 1,000 lashes. Jack and Kamina were hunted down and shot. The body of the black deacon Kamina was then strung up on a gibbet, where a colony of wasps made a nest, flying in and out of his mouth. The other planters, of course, wagged their fingers and claimed that it proved it was dangerous to treat your enslaved workers more kindly. Which, of course, in practice, John Gladstone wasn't. But the planters were always full of ludicrous excuses. They also blamed a missionary, James Smith, for starting the rebellion. They got up a court and persuaded, shall we say, a number of enslaved people to give evidence. Smith, of course, was condemned to death, but died in prison before he could be executed. Of course, as we've seen, the West Indies planters had always opposed the missionaries and would use any excuse whatever to prevent them preaching to the enslaved. Planters also blamed the abolitionists in England, claiming that the rebels had somehow heard that emancipation had already been granted, 
and that the local authorities were refusing to comply. It was the same claim the planters always made when there was a revolt. The rebels' demands at Bachelor's Adventure show that it was a complete fiction. Not only did the rebels say nothing whatever about emancipation having been granted, they didn't even demand it. The reason, however, that the planters could start up their usual nonsense was that earlier that year, in January 1823, the abolition campaign had in fact flickered back into life, having done virtually nothing for the previous 16 years. Nobody writing about enslavement seems to be able to explain quite why the campaign revived in 1823. Perhaps it's because they're looking in the wrong direction. As usual, when you pull up some more chairs and look around, things become clearer. That January, the Tory government under Lord Liverpool, which had been in power since 1815, was just finishing a major cabinet reshuffle. 13 ministerial changes in all. Exactly why the reshuffle happened is too convoluted to go into, but the upshot was that the government now moved decisively towards relaxing those old navigation laws. They were the laws, you remember, that laid down that trade in the empire was only to be between British-held ports and in British ships. The government had already been making some initial moves towards freer trade, And partly as a result, Britain's trade was booming. Well, relaxing the navigation laws, of course, opened up the possibility of ending the tariffs that had always protected the British West Indies' enslaved-grown sugar and kept out cheaper sugar from anyone else. And that possibility had caught the attention of a Liverpool merchant called James Cropper. Like so many abolitionists, Cropper was a Quaker. He specialised, in fact, in the import of East India sugar and cotton from the southern states of North America. Since the early 1820s, he'd in fact been campaigning to get rid of the whole system of protective duties that was propping up the British Caribbean sugar economy and discriminating against East Indian sugar and everyone else. Well, of course he would, wouldn't he? But Cropper was apparently a sincere abolitionist. For him, getting rid of the sugar duties would open up the market to God's providence and thereby sweep enslavement itself away. As you might imagine, Cropper got into a furious argument with that other Liverpool merchant, the slave owner John Gladstone. The two had been friends, but now got into an increasingly bad-tempered exchange in the Liverpool papers. Gladstone was a more skilful writer and debater and got the better of the argument. He also had friends in high places. Cropper needed allies. So, in July 1822, he contacted some of the old abolitionists and succeeded in winning their support for his tariff reform idea. By January 1823, after the government reshuffle, getting rid of the West Indies' protective tariffs began to look like a real possibility. The abolition campaign finally cranked into action again. early 1820s, the British Tory government moved towards more free trade. It opened up the possibility of ending the tariffs that had protected the West Indian sugar planters and their brutal and inefficient system of enslavement. 
Perhaps as a result, after a gap of 16 years, the abolition campaign stirred into life again. Well, it was hardly a hotbed of revolution. In January 1823, 24 men met at the King's Head in central London, and they formed what they called the Society for Mitigating and Gradually Abolishing the State of Slavery. Great name. Actually, it was known by a large number of different names, but they were all variations of the same thing. The same rather mealy-mouthed and extremely limited thing. All these men apparently wanted to do was to make the enslaved people's lives a little bit better, in the hope that over time, probably a very great deal of time, they might, uh, perhaps, maybe, transition slowly, imperceptibly, into hired labour. It really wasn't very far from what John Gladstone imagined he was doing. Anyway, we'll call their society, as most historians do, the Anti-Slavery Society. For all its notable lack of ambition, it was an impressive group. It included, for example, Zachary Macaulay, who was father of the well-known historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, and like William Wilberforce, an evangelical living in Clapham. Now, Macaulay had been an accountant in Jamaica and then governor of the African colony of Sierra Leone. He had drawn up a vast body of evidence of the planter's cruelty. William Wilberforce was also there, though he was now in his 60s, almost blind and being held up by a steel corset. He was in no condition to lead a campaign. The new society's leader was another MP, Thomas Fole the Elephant Buxton. He was married to a Quaker and had a reputation in Parliament for getting things done by sheer bloody-minded determination, like it was said a, a dray horse or an elephant. Thomas Clarkson remembered the inspiration of the abolition movement back in the 1780s and 1790s was not at the King's Head when they first met, but he was quickly talked out of retirement and back into the saddle. Although he was also now in his 60s, he now established 150 new branches of the Campaigning Society and raised 777 petitions in a single year. The man was a phenomenon. Now, we could embark on a narrative of this new anti-slavery campaign, as many accounts of the subject do. Uh, there was a bit of a public boycott of West Indies sugar. Once more, as historian Claire Midgley has shown, women played a significant part, especially in setting up anti-slavery associations. But as a way of explaining how enslavement came to an end, an account of the 1820s abolition campaign would be sadly beside the point. Like slick-talking businessmen in every age, John Gladstone had caught the ear of the Tory government. He persuaded them that his version of glacial improvement in the conditions of the enslaved, which was a fiction anyway, was the way forward. So the government kept promising to do something about the conditions of the enslaved and kept kicking the issue into the long grass. The 1823 rebellion in Guyana, of course, gave the government the perfect excuse to do absolutely nothing. Oh, look what happens if you get the hopes up of the enslaved, they argued, knowing, of course, nothing at all about the facts. By 1830, the Anti-Slavery Society had achieved nothing and more or less ground to a halt. One despairing campaigner reported, quote, not one in 10,000 of the whole population had any but the most vague and general idea of the nature of the state of slavery. When that year, 1830, a deputation from the Anti-Slavery Society met colonial office officials, they were told that, quotes, the determination of the ministry at present is to do nothing. And if it is left to government, West India slavery may exist with little mitigation for ages yet to come. Thank you very much. 
evidence now came in that just in the newer British colonies where the government had more control, between 1828 and 1830, just two years, planters had subjected enslaved people to 1.3 million lashes of the whip. We can only assume that it was worse in the older colonies. Where there was even less control over the planters. In 1831, younger members of the Anti-Slavery Society were so angry that nothing at all was being done that one of them, James Stephen, stormed the platform at a meeting and demanded action, now, straight away. Well, the meeting, with its usual lack of ambition, shouted him down. As he was leaving, Stephen was approached by a Quaker who'd been at the meeting. It was James Cropper, the man whose tariff reform ideas had got the campaign going again, such as it was, in 1823. Cropper quietly promised Stephen whatever he needed to campaign for immediate abolition and got his Quaker friends to stump up the cash. They began plastering posters all over London. Backers of the West Indies planters pasted their posters over the top. Stephen's backers retaliated. Breaking away completely from the moribund old anti-slavery association, Stephen's new younger society began setting up lecture tours and started new regional associations. So the real abolitionist campaign to end slavery only really got going in 1831, far too late to be the reason enslavement was ended in 1833. For that, we have to look, as we did with the end of the slave trade in 1807, at the politics, and above all, the economics. anti-slavery campaign cranked feebly into action in 1823. It stepped up a gear in 1831, but it was far too little and far too late to explain why slavery was abolished in 1833. For that, we need to understand the politics and the economics. Well, the politics is a massive subject in itself, since these were the years of the Great Reform Act of 1832, in which a new Whig government entirely changed the way MPs were elected. Some historians claim that this, in fact, was the key to abolition, since they say the West Indies planters' friends among the MPs had sat for old corrupt seats, which were now abolished. Well, it's hard to pin down the number of MPs who backed the West Indian planters. Different historians come up with vastly different numbers. But the fact is that whichever way you look at it, there were never more than a few dozen, and those who lost their seats under the new system were not nearly enough to make much difference. And nor was the new Whig government much more inclined to abolish enslavement than the Tory governments had been. They were much too preoccupied with getting their reform bill through, which was a huge endeavour and accompanied by a good deal of violence that dwarfed the struggling abolition campaign. And once the Reform Act was through, the Whigs' priorities were to get on with a whole series of other long, long overdue changes to local government, to conditions in the mines and in the new factories that were starting to appear, and much besides. So yes, without the fall of the Tories, enslavement might not have been abolished. But the reality, exactly as in 1807 when the slave trade was banned, was that it was the economics that actually caused abolition to happen. In 1831, a hurricane devastated Barbados, costing millions of pounds worth of damage. Just after Christmas 1831, Jamaica had its biggest ever revolt, to which we'll come back. 
In January 1832, in the wake of these events, the Lords appointed a select committee to look into enslavement. Well, it's said that 24 out of 25 who were appointed to the select committee were pro-slavery. Now, to give it its credit, it's true that the Anti-Slavery Society plied the one abolitionist member, Lord Suffield, with anti-slavery information. And they submitted a petition with 135,346 names. It was over a mile long. But the fact was that the logic of abolition was getting to be apparently obvious even to the most enthusiastic slaver. One story told by historian Michael Taylor is that William Nibb, a Baptist missionary, was called in as a witness and told the committee of the cruelty he'd witnessed. The next day, on his way back to the committee room, he was waylaid by the Earl of Harewood, who had estates on Barbados and was one of the leading pro-slavery voices. Harewood quietly took Nibb off to a side room and he told him that if what he'd said about cruelty was true, then he, Harewood, would sack his manager straight away. Apparently, Lord Harewood was now on his way to becoming a convert to abolition. In January 1832, the House of Commons also set up a select committee. This committee was not, significantly, established to investigate enslavement at all, but to investigate the problems now facing the West Indian sugar-planting economy. The committee met for just 19 days. It heard that world sugar production had hugely increased over recent decades and the price had collapsed. The price sugar was getting even in London had dropped 60% since 1815. The Board of Trade now reckoned that British West Indies sugar was costing over £1 more per hundredweight than Cuban sugar. That meant that it was completely impossible for the West Indies planters to sell anywhere except Britain, where they were protected by high duties on foreign sugar. But even selling in Britain, the committee heard, the planters were now making a loss on every single hundredweight of sugar. The committee also heard the planters blame their troubles on the fact that they could no longer import newly enslaved peoples. Well, there's a surprise. It was anyway a straight lie. As the historian Kathleen Mary Butler has shown, there was no economic reason at all why raising the children of the enslaved should be any more expensive than buying newly enslaved people. In fact, since so many among the newly enslaved arrivals very quickly died, raising enslaved children ought to work out cheaper. But of course, the British planters were treating the enslaved so badly that very few babies were being born and even fewer were surviving. More important, the committee also heard all about the problem of indebtedness. Mortgages on estates, old annuities they were still having to pay every year to planters' relatives, the complex system of credit that financed trade to and fro across the Atlantic. Financing the trade alone was eating up between 10 and 20% of the business. The Barbados planters had been complaining that they couldn't even pay the interest on their mortgages, let alone anything else. It meant that by 1832, British West Indies sugar production was simply becoming unviable. Now, historians have always quibbled over whether these figures were accurate. But it really doesn't matter. These were the figures that the House of Commons was working with at the start of 1832. Anyway, you can't argue with the fact that since the start of the 1790s, over 70 West Indies sugar firms had collapsed. Ten had failed in 1831 alone. As historian Nicholas Straper has discovered, by the 1820s, there was little evidence of any new investment in the enslaved economy at all. It had by then become too bad a business to back. 
The fact was that the economics of enslavement were damning. It plainly had to be ended before it took any more firms down. But that was only half the story. The British abolished enslavement not because they were so wonderfully moral, but because they were so bad at enslavement. They managed it with such crass inhumanity that unlike the Spanish, the Portuguese or the North Americans, they just couldn't make it pay. If that's supposed to be a sign of British moral superiority, then I, for one, am a Frenchman. Yeah, me too. By 1832, the balance of the British Empire had also shifted very significantly. British manufacture of cottons had boomed in Lancashire and most of those cottons were being exported not west across the Atlantic, but east to India. In 1833, the charter of the East India Company was again up for renewal as it was every 20 years. The East Indian trade was now so enormous that it was inevitable that this time the company would lose its trading monopoly. The trade to India and China would therefore be thrown open to everyone. Many of the West Indian planters, including John Gladstone of Liverpool, were hastily shifting their investments to the India trade. Many other merchants in Liverpool, Bristol and Glasgow were doing the same. So were the London city bankers. And there was also something else. You recall from an earlier discussion, the East Indies, like every other part of the British Empire and much of the British departments of government, including the colonial office, had been taken up, not quite to say flooded, by evangelical Anglicans. As historian Gareth Atkins has shown, they were an enormously influential lobby. But the West Indies had remained stubbornly closed to evangelical Anglicans and indeed to most other missionaries. Which brings us back to that Jamaican rebellion of 1831. The planters, as usual, blamed the rebellion on rumours that emancipation was on its way or had already been granted. Well, we can forget that for a start. They also claimed that the rebellion had been led by a black Baptist deacon, Samuel Sharp. Uh, Well, no surprise there either. Although 52 estates were destroyed, the rebellion was easily put down. It was followed by the usual vicious reprisals. The Jamaican Assembly established an inquiry which set out from the start to blame the Baptist missions. It named the rebellion the Baptist War. Jamaican newspapers now began calling for missionaries to be lynched. And we're not joking. George Wilson Bridges was the Anglican rector of St Anne's Parish set around a beautiful bay on the North Jamaican coast. Actually, we've met this vile creature before in our very first discussion in this series. You remember him brutally assaulting his house servant because he changed his mind about whether she should cook him turkey or not for his supper. Well, early in 1832, after the rebellion, Bridges founded the Colonial Church Union, CCU. It was based on an earlier so-called white company he'd set up, and it was grimly, grotesquely similar to the Ku Klux Klan that would appear three decades later in the southern United States. Bridges' CCU began systematically burning down Baptist chapels, attempting to assassinate their pastors. They tarred and feathered one white missionary and tried to set him on fire. They threw a Methodist missionary through a window. 
they drew up a formal register of CCU members in each parish on the island, lynching whites who opposed it. Now Jamaica began to descend into civil war. It was not because of anything the enslaved were doing. It was because of the white supremacist rector of St Anne's. Now put this against the backdrop of the soaring East Indian economy and the deeply embedded cooperation between every other part of the empire and the formidable evangelical Anglican lobby. What you realise is that the brief and ghastly history of the CCU reveals exactly the fundamental reason Parliament finally abolished enslavement. It showed beyond doubt that the Jamaican planters, who had always dominated the West Indian planters' lobby in London, were a breed of racist thug who flatly refused to make conditions tolerable on their plantations. Complacently believing that their business was too important for Parliament to desert, they made no attempt to adopt the measures of amelioration that had made enslaved cultivation of sugar economically viable if not moral, elsewhere. Viciously anti-missionary, they completely failed to realise that their racist brutality was entirely out of step, not just with well-meaning abolitionist opinion, but with the hard-nosed evangelicals who had quietly spread throughout government and the rest of the British Empire. As the British Caribbean economy began to collapse, now nobody in any position of influence would defend the British planters' brutality, their business incompetence, and their irreligion. Abolition became the obvious solution. Early in 1832, both Lords and Commons were hearing evidence that enslavement was not working in the British West Indies. Jamaica was heading towards civil war as the white supremacist vicar of St Anne's Parish, William Bridges, lynched missionaries and set fire to their chapels. It was now obvious that the whole enslavement scandal would have to be brought to an end as quickly as possible. There was only one remaining issue to be resolved. If Parliament simply abolished enslavement, there'd be a credit crisis. The planters' chronic indebtedness had drawn in so many businesses, especially in London, that simply shutting it down would send countless banks and merchants out of business. The planters themselves may even have believed that this, if nothing else, would protect them. But by 1832, the answer was plain, if unpalatable. The planters would have to be bought out. Their debts would have to be paid off before their businesses collapsed. They could then be allowed to wither away without bringing down the whole financial structure of the City of London and many in Britain's other ports too. So by early 1833, back-channel, secret behind-the-scenes negotiations were going on with the planters. Do you want a loan? 15 million? Uh, an outright grant? 20 million? All right, agreed. 20 million pounds. That would represent 40% of the government's annual expenditure. But in 1833, the government was flush with money. Despite the well-known widespread industrial and rural distress across the country, the Tory governments of the previous 17 years had scandalously run up large surpluses. Even so, the government would still have to borrow. After all, this was the biggest payout in British government history until the banks, in altogether similar circumstances, were bailed out in 2008. The loans the British government took to buy out the planters in 1835 took until 2015 to pay off which means that many of us have had our taxes used to pay the slave owners. 
scandalously, descendants of the enslaved who settled in Britain had their taxes taken to pay for compensation to the slave owners. And there are still people who want to claim that Britain has a moral record over slavery to be proud of. The Act to End Enslavement passed its second reading on the 22nd of July 1833 and had royal assent on the 28th of August. Only in the very final months had the abolition campaign played any significant part. To give him his due, Thomas the Elephant Buxton had been, true to his reputation, bullishly determined to push the Whig government to get on with sorting the enslavement crisis out resisting all the usual kinds of government tactics to delay. The Act ended enslavement from the 1st of August 1834. In fact, all the enslaved over six years old were to become apprentices, meaning that they would have to go on working on their former owner's plantation for several days each week without pay for six years. Lax work was to be punishable at official workhouses, which were notoriously brutal. The planters had clearly learned nothing. In practice, the new apprentices, who accepted the act quietly, often in their churches at midnight on the 1st of August, mostly walked away from the plantations and devoted themselves to farming their small plots of land. By 1838, the apprenticeship scheme was dead and was wound up. Enslavement, however, was allowed to continue in British India. What that tells you is that ending enslavement had never been a moral campaign. It had been specifically about the way enslavement had been run in the West Indies and the crippling financial crisis it had caused. Well, enslavement was eventually banned in India in 1843, but it continued in other British colonies much longer. In British East Africa, it wasn't abolished until 1904. In British Malaya, 1915. British Burma, 1926 and in British Bechuana land, not until 1936. It was among the last couple of dozen places in the world still to have enslavement. What became of the Caribbean plantations is another scandal. The planters now shipped in labour from East India, so-called indentured labour. They were technically employed on contracts to work nine hours a day, six days a week, for a tiny wage, from which was deducted costs of food, shelter and medical care. It was a system pioneered in 1837 and 1838 by that great supposed campaigner for the amelioration of enslavement. You guessed it. The Tories' friend, the Liverpool merchant, John Gladstone. It had the backing of the British government and continued until 1917. Heather Cato, an historian at the University of the West Indies, has shown that in some ways this indentured system treated people worse than enslavement had. In 1999, the African World Reparations and Repatriations Truth Commission called on the nations responsible for enslavement to pay $777 trillion in compensation. In 2014, 15 nations from the British Caribbean launched a 10-point plan for reparatory justice, calling for a British government apology and aid to health and educational programmes. These calls, as you will not be surprised to learn, have been met with silence. The Australian Walk Free Foundation reckoned in 2013 that there were 30 million people still living in conditions that are equivalent to enslavement, especially in Pakistan, India, China and Russia. Judging by the history of British enslavement, this will continue until economic conditions make it unprofitable. 
So it's up to us to boycott goods made by these enslaved peoples. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>